Our reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So this past week, I got one of those messages on my computer, uh, a Windows message that I had ignored for months now, that it was time for an upgrade. Do you want to allow this to continue? And foolishly, I pushed yes. Now, as far as I know, it was legit. I mean, nothing has crashed or anything like that. But it's annoying. Updates, upgrades, they're just annoying. They change things. And now there's certain things I can't do that I used to be able to do, or I don't know how to do what I used to be able to do, and I'm confused and I'm frustrated. I just want to say that up front. Now, having said that in my introduction about a negative upgrade, I want to use that as an analogy. I would like for you, with me for the next few moments, to get an upgrade on the Bible. Whoa, Bob. (laughs) You really are a heretic. Bible doesn't need to be upgraded. It's okay the way it is. I know. I know that. Um, What I mean by that is this. I want you to, I want to invite you Okay, for the next few minutes, to see the Bible differently. Now, by the end of it, you may say to yourself, I don't see any difference. That's okay, we'll get there. Here we go. What is the Bible about? The Bible is about the mission of God to the world. In short, the Bible is about God's mission to God's world. It begins in Genesis. It ends in Revelation. And that's basically the story. So what is the story? Well, let me divide it into Old Testament and New Testament with just a few phrases. 
and then I'll explain. Here's the Old Testament. Genesis 1 through 3, but especially 3. God's plan for humanity is predicted. Genesis 12, God's plan for humanity is initiated. Then, after Genesis 12, there's a long gap, at least in my outline. And the episode called God's Plan Demonstrated is introduced to us. That is, the kingdom of Israel. The fourth part of God's plan in the Old Testament is what I'll call God's plan demolished in the exile. So here's how it starts. God creates a perfect world. And humanity messes it up. That's the first three chapters of the Bible, of Genesis. Everything was good, and humanity messed it up. So you know what God's plan is? God's plan is to take the very humanity that botched the thing up to begin with and to restore the plan with humanity. Go figure. That's what God proposes to do. Here's our first clue. In Genesis 3:15, God says to Eve and to Adam vicariously, "You made a mess of things. You did what you were not supposed to do. Now sin has entered the world and everything's going wrong." And he looks at the serpent and he says, "You're the problem. You deceived this woman." You created sin in this world that was perfect and was mine. And I want to tell you both something. I'm not going to have it that way. I'm going to restore it. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to take the seed of this woman who began the mess up. I'm going to take her seed and I'm going to use her seed to crush your head, serpent, Satan. And in so doing... Her seed is going to have a bruised heel. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. It's going to be catastrophic. But he's going to crush the head of you, serpent, Satan. Now the church looks back at that passage and they see Jesus written all over it. They see the seed of the woman eventually becoming Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, fully God, Absolutely, completely human, but also fully man, fully God, both in the same person. And that fully human Jesus walked through every part of humanity's condition, experienced sin as all of us experienced it, yet did not fall prey to sin. And in the end, crushes the head of the serpent. How? By defeating sin and death in the resurrection because sin and death could not conquer the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's how we see it. Well, that's how the plan is predicted to come to fruition. That's the plan predicted. Now the plan initiated. Go backwards 
We just advanced to Jesus. But go back to Genesis chapter 12. After all this catastrophic chaos is introduced into the perfect world that God created, God says to one man in the birthplace of civilization, I'm calling you. I'm calling you for a mission. You, one man. Genesis chapter 12. What was the name of that one man? Come on, you know it. Abraham. I'm calling you, Abraham, out of your culture, out of your city, out of your town, out of everything that you know, and I'm going to take you to a place that you don't know, you don't understand, and you haven't seen. And through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. Through your seed, I'm going to bring into your body a child that will bless the whole world. And Abraham waits until he's 100 years old and Isaac is born. And when Isaac is born, the promise, the blessing for all of humanity, all of humanity, all of humanity, Abraham, here's a call from God. And the call is, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, the one that I promised to bless the whole world with, and I want you to take him up to Mount Moriah, I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham says to himself, you got to be kidding me. You initiated the plan through me, and now you're going to destroy it? Of course, you know the story. Abraham takes his son to the top of Mount Moriah and God says, Abraham, stop. Don't do it. (laughs) I still struggle with the story, honestly. i got to be serious with you. Why did God put him through the travail? Well, primarily to show us what God planned to do in the future. Abraham, stop. Don't sacrifice Isaac. I've got a lamb. It's caught over here in the thicket. I know you're willing to follow me. I know that you will complete the plan I've called you to complete. I know that through this one that I promised, the whole world would eventually be blessed. And now we look back as the Christian church and see Jesus Christ in the sacrifice of Abraham and in the ram caught in the thicket. Because God, the Father, willingly sacrifices his son on behalf of the world he created and through him he will redeem it. So the plan is predicted in Genesis 3. The plan is initiated in Genesis 12. And the plan is demonstrated in the kingdom of Israel. Now, don't jump to conclusions concerning my interpretation of prophecy and all that kind of thing. Don't go there because that's not what I'm talking about, okay? Just want to tell you that. Here's what I am saying. God chose a group of people, a tiny minority, through the seed of Abraham to demonstrate what God wanted the world to be like. He wanted to demonstrate through a tiny little minority of people who didn't have their act together what he wanted to do with humanity. And he did it by creating a kingdom. He calls the people out of bondage. Moses, you know the story, across the Red Sea and they march across the desert and finally they inherit the land. Now here's the story. I want you to see the story perhaps differently. They inherit a land. A land of absolute chaos. A land of overwhelming violence. Children sacrificed on a daily basis. The kind of sins that we don't even hear about in major cities. You don't have to read the Bible to know it and believe it. You can just read anthropology textbooks on the Canaanites. It was utter, unmitigated chaos and sin. 
And God said, I'm going to plant a nation right in the middle of all that sin. And I want that nation to be a light to the world. I want that nation to be a place when people look at it, they say, that's the way God wants things to be. He planted that nation there. And man, did they mess it up. Just like Adam and Eve. Just like us. But on occasion, there were high points in that nation. And the one that's referred back to most of the time in the New Testament is the kingdom of David from which Christ comes. That is, he's an ancestor to Christ, David. That high point in the kingdom of David, it was a peaceable kingdom. It was a kingdom of order and not chaos. It was a kingdom of light and not darkness. And then, of course, sin started to destroy that kingdom. The human kingdom began to fragment. The kingdom fell apart. And the nation was taken into exile. That's the fourth point. The plan demolished. God allows this nation, who would not follow Him, to suffer the consequences of their own unrighteousness. They're taken into captivity. But God, being a gracious and merciful God, restores them some 70 years later to their land. They reconstruct the foundation of the temple, later the temple. They reconstruct the walls. And things are great, right? Wrong. Things are empty. They're a shell of the previous nation. They're under the heavy boot of Lots of other powerful nations like Greece and later Rome. And for 400 years, they say, God, where are you? Where's the promise? See, the 400 years is right here. This is the Old Testament. This is the New. For 400 years, they waited. And they said, God, where are you? Or to put it in the words of the text that were just read, Lord, when are you going to establish your kingdom? That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. God's plan. Predicted, initiated, demonstrated, and it seems demolished. Fast forward to the New Testament. We're jumping 400 years. Not a whole lot of documentation of those 400 years. We know very little. What we know is that when Jesus came at the beginning of our series called Rediscovering Jesus, we introduced you to the words of Jesus, namely the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus initiates his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew and basically says this. The plan is about to be restored. Yeah, it was demolished. But God is here. The presence of the kingdom of God is among you. And here it is. So what's the New Testament? I've only got three phrases for the New Testament. The first one is this. Here's the kingdom, Jesus says. Live it. The second part, here's the power. Think the book of Acts. Use it. 
The third part, here's the future. Think of the book of Revelation. Believe it. So first, here's the kingdom. Live it. Here's the kingdom. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be meek. Because the meek are going to inherit the earth. You've got to be kidding me. When's the last time you saw a meek dictator? When's the last time you thought of an empire being meek? When's the last time you saw a power broker being meek? Jesus says, the meek will inherit the earth. The merciful. All those qualities that I'm talking to you about. I want you to live that way. Or in other words, I want you to live right side up in an upside down world. It looks like to you, when you look around you, that all reality says live this way to get ahead. And I'm telling you, I want you to live backwards in order to get ahead. Put it differently. I want you to believe that there's an invisible, eternal reality that is right next to you that actually defines all of reality. And I want you to step into that stream of the invisible, eternal reality and live the kingdom of God right here, right now. There's the kingdom. Live it. Second point. It comes in Acts. It begins where we read in chapter 1. Here's the power. Use it. The disciples might have thought, just like I think, when I read the Beatitudes, Lord, really? You want me to be meek? You want me to be merciful? You want me to be forgiving? You want me to rejoice when people persecute me? You want me... I can't do it! Seriously? If that's the kingdom, it might be real. I just can't get there, Lord. The book of Acts basically says this to the apostles who are waiting. When Jesus has walked away, delivered Himself to the Father, or the Father brought Him to Himself, here's what I want you to believe. Power is coming so that you can live it. I want you to use it. Oh, by the way, uh, imagine yourselves the disciples. They're left behind with this vague promise that they don't understand. They've been given all these glowing realities concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus has basically vanished from their midst. He was crucified and then he rose again and they still can't figure that one out. And now he's gone and all they've got is his teachings and themselves. Themselves. All of those who deserted him. They're discouraged, they're bewildered, and they're overwhelmed by a sense of betrayal. Well, that's my interpretation. You say betrayal? Yeah, because Jesus was going to give them the kingdom of God. He'd introduced it and he said, here it is, live it. And then he just vanishes from their eyes. And the kingdom doesn't look like it's anywhere in sight. And they don't know how to bring the kingdom in. And they're absolutely impotent to do anything about it. And Jesus leaves them and they feel, well, betrayed. But you know the other betrayal they feel? Their own. They left him at the cross. 
They walked away. Peter wasn't the only one. They didn't have what it took. They knew it. They left him. Now they're standing there watching him go to heaven and an angel's telling them, I got some good news for you concerning the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Here it is. Go back to Jerusalem and sit down and wait. That's my good news. And while you wait, the Spirit will be poured out on you. Well, because they didn't have any better ideas and because they actually believed the words of the angel, they went back and they waited. And while they waited, the Spirit was poured out upon them. And he gave them the power to be witnesses, not only there, but to the uttermost parts of the earth. What's the third part? It's the book of Revelation. Here's the future. Believe it. By the way, the book of Revelation begins this way. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of John. It's not his ideas about how he thinks things are going to come to pass in the future. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, who's on the Isle of Patmos, the only disciple, apparently, who didn't die the death of a martyr. In his old age, he gets this vision on the Lord's Day, a revelation from Jesus Christ. And basically, the revelation of Jesus Christ is this. I'll make it real simple because it's complicated and I don't understand even a third of it. Here's a simple version. God says, I'm going to send Jesus back. And I'm going to finish the job. That's the future. What does that mean? In effect, it means this. He's going to do what he said in Genesis chapter 3. He is going to completely crush the head of Satan. Remember the images in the book of Revelation, the bottomless pit where Satan is thrown, bound, and cannot ever in any way tempt the saints again. Cannot create the chaos that we see all around us. Satan is gone. He's vanquished. He's over. It's going to happen. That is the future. Now believe it. And until then, live in the kingdom of God. Man, I can't wait for that day. (laughs) Won't it be great? Where all the sin that so easily besets you is gone? Where the Satan who's the great tempter has been vanquished? Where nothing but peace and harmony exists? Where true biblical shalom is a reality? Wow, that'll be great. It's coming. Some days it's hard to believe it, but I do. I believe it. So should you. Well, there's my story of the Bible. And so you say to yourself, big deal, Bob. I already knew that story. At the beginning, I asked you to see the Bible differently. And you may be saying to yourself, haven't seen it differently yet. Okay, so here's the application. Did you notice that that story... It's not about you. Did you notice that that story is not dependent on you? Let me say something really radical that people are going to get upset by. That's okay. Did you notice that the story I told had nothing to do with you having a personal relationship with Jesus? 
Told you that would bother some people. Do I believe in that? Absolutely. Is that what the story's about? No. What's the story about? The kingdom of God. Here's what I want to say, which I hope will be a challenge to us to rethink how we're viewing the Bible on a daily basis. You and I, and here's the rub, as people who claim to be evangelical, do a really good job of personal Bible study when we're at our best, and personal application when preachers are at their best, and making the text come alive for tomorrow so you can be a better Christian when we're at our best. And all of those things are great. And all of those things can create in us a hideous form of legalism and self-righteousness and self-centeredness. Let me ask it another way. Of all the Bible studies you've ever done and seen written, how many of those Bible studies that you've ever done and seen written have been about the kingdom of God? I I don't know what your response would be. I've seen a lot of Bible studies. And for the most part, they're not. What are they about? They're about personal righteousness, about avoiding sin, and about a lot of other really good things. But they're about us. I don't mean they're wrong. Please understand me. But they are self-centered about us. And I'm not suggesting that even that is wrong. What I'm suggesting is this. When we have a daily dose of thinking about ourselves, even if it's about how to live a better life and be more righteous, it can be a problem. Because our eyes can focus on me and not the larger kingdom of God. Let me say one more thing before I conclude. I want this message to be, it doesn't sound like it yet, an encouraging word. Because what I want it to do is I want it to free us from ourselves so that we can lift our eyes above and see the kingdom of God and be part of the kingdom of God. I want you to think about an image. Instead of being a chicken, I want us to be an eagle. A chicken runs around on the ground all the time. It's got its heads down. Well, it's being prepared to eat and all that kind of stuff. We know that part of it. Chicken is down there looking at the grain. It's got its face down. And the scripture never says, I want you to soar on wings like chickens, does it? Huh? I want you to soar on wings like eagles. I want you to run and not be weary. I want you to walk and not faint. But you know what the image of the eagle is, among other things? Not just strength. It's about perspective It's about seeing the world differently. You don't see the world like that as a chicken. You don't see the kingdom of God living like a chicken. 
And sometimes we live like chickens just pecking around for little kernels that are going to give us nutrients and make us better Christians and prepare us for heaven. And all those things are good, but there's something else happening. It's called the kingdom of God. And so many times I get so self-focused that that's all I think about. I might not be much, but I'm all I think about. And God calls us in His Word to do this. Remember the words of Jesus. He says on one occasion, actually more than one occasion, you don't want to know what life is. Here's what life is. I want you to die. Die to yourself so that you can live. Live to me. What does that mean? Among other things, it means stop thinking about Bob and start thinking about the kingdom of God. It means that if I lose myself, I actually find myself. That I find my own personal identity not in focusing on me and my relationship with God and how the next day is going to work out for me and God, though that is important. But when I focus on the kingdom of God, I actually find my identity within it. Now, you might say to yourself, Wow, that's an incomplete sermon. You got it right, it is. Because I haven't hardly said anything about what the mission or the kingdom of God is in the world. But it's something for us to seek and to be a part of. One of the things uh, we're thinking about, just shooting way out ahead, at the beginning of the fall semester next year, is focusing on this thing called the mission of the church. What does it mean for the church as a body of believers to think about the mission of God in the world? Just a little advertisement for the future. Until then, just remember this. The story of Bible is about the mission of God to humanity. And you have been given a personal invitation to be a part of the story. That is real living. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, helping us to see above ourselves. Um, we're so constrained by self that it's hard to do, and we hardly feel we have the to- tools to do it. Um, and we confess that even in our best moments, we still are self-centered. So we pray you'll help us understand as um, Christ followers, what it means to lift our eyes up to see the kingdom of God. And not to focus just on ourselves, but to focus on what you're doing in the world. It seems that when we look at the book of Acts, that's exactly what happened. The apostles weren't thinking about themselves. They were thinking about your kingdom. And your kingdom exploded onto the horizon of humanity. And righteousness prevailed in a way that it couldn't otherwise. And it didn't happen because of personal introspection. It happened because their eyes were on the kingdom of God. Uh, We pray you'll help us do that in whatever way we can and give us understanding to know how. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.